How's everyone doing today? We have got a good amount of stuff to cover, but I think we can move along in a fair amount of time. All right, let's open in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time to be together. Thank you that we can come together and worship you and see your glory and the greatness of your mercy and your love for us, Lord. We pray that um, you would bless this sermon and that we would have a clearer picture of the concepts in your word, Lord. We pray that we would understand your word deeper and we would understand you deeper and we would know you deeper. Uh, we pray that uh, you would just bless this and you'd give us your grace. We thank you and amen. Amen. So today we are continuing our series called the GCF Vision. <clears throat> so I'll give the typical intro for the series that I usually do. The vision, or the GCF vision, is a term that we use a lot, but that we haven't had a thorough teaching on in a while, at least not since Greg was uh, teaching at Wright State or at RCF. Um, so I'm going to be doing this series where I try to concisely yet thoroughly explain uh, what exactly the GCF vision is. So our, our vision, or the GCF vision, is that there are certain aspects of Christianity that God wants Christians to rediscover and restore, and there's basically five of them. The first one is that, uh, you know, we need to restore having a biblically complete understanding of, experience of, and presentation of the gospel. Uh, the second one being grace-based instead of performance-based. The third one being reformed and charismatic. The fourth one, understanding the role, relevance, and responsibilities of the church. And the fifth one, having a victorious eschatology. So again, I'm not saying that there are no churches that do these things, uh, but most churches don't have all five of them. A lot of churches do well at one or two, and a lot of other churches do well at a different one or two. But most churches today don't have all five of these aspects. Uh, but we believe that God wants to restore that and that that's going to change over the next few decades. So today we're continuing a subsection of this series called The Strengths of Reformed Churches. And after we finish covering that, uh, we'll look at the strengths of charismatic churches. And then we'll look at the strengths and the synergy that comes from having a church culture that's both reformed and charismatic. But we are currently on the subsection, uh, The Strengths of Reformed Churches. So... How I explain what I mean by reformed, I use the analogy, if you were trying to explain to, say, uh, a foreigner or someone who hadn't heard of rock music or pop music before, if you were trying to explain what the difference between rock music and pop music is, you wouldn't really be able to do so in just one sentence, because there's no single objective criteria that makes us on rock or that makes us on pop. You'd have to give a list of characteristics that tend to describe those. And I think that's the easier way to describe reformed church culture and charismatic church culture. So for uh, what I would consider a reformed church or some strengths of a reformed church, um, I've got four of them. Having an emphasis on the five solas, which we already looked at. Having a biblical view of predestination and election, which we looked at last time. Holding to covenant theology rather than dispensationalism, which we'll start to look at today and placing a high priority on regularly and thoroughly studying God's Word. So today, uh, today's sermon is an overview of covenant theology. My outline is 16 pages. I think we can still do it in under an hour. <laughs> All right, so covenant theology and dispensationalism, what are they? Covenant theology and dispensationalism are both theological frameworks for how to look at and understand redemptive history as a whole. Redemptive history is just the history of God redeeming humanity. So really, redemptive history is human history. Redemptive history is human history, but with a focus on how God interacts with humans. So both of these... Um, both covenant theology and dispensationalism are ways of trying to look at the history of redemption as a whole and see not only the big picture, but also how each time period fits into God's purposes. That's a reasonable thing to want to be able to do. Uh, so they're both theological frameworks 
for trying to understand God's purposes in redemptive history. So covenant theology looks at redemptive history and the ways God relates to humanity in each phase through the lens of a series of covenants that God initiates. Covenant theology looks at redemptive history and the ways God relates to humanity in each phase through the lens of a series of covenant relationships. So what is a covenant relationship? Um, I like using the term covenant relationship because I feel like it's, it's specific. A covenant relationship is a relationship that's governed by a covenant. So what's a covenant? Well, at its most basic form, a covenant is a solemn agreement between two parties or individuals. And I'm going to give two examples of covenant relationships, marriage and Susan Tree. So the, the easier example to give is marriage. You know, I have a covenant relationship with Teresa. My relationship with Teresa and every interaction we have is governed by the fact and in the context of the fact that three years ago we made vows, a solemn agreement with each other to love each other and serve each other and to be faithful to each other above all others. And our entire relationship happens in the context of that covenant, that agreement, that solemn agreement. It is governed by that agreement. How we treat each other is governed by that agreement. So marriage is a good example of a covenant relationship. There's also another uh, example I have of a covenant relationship called a Susan tree, which is, um, you know, like a covenant relationship between nations. But in a Susan tree, um, there's a dominant nation and a subordinate nation. Uh, so these were more common in other cultures in ancient history. But, um, you know, one nation would conquer another nation, and they'd make a covenant with them, like, we're not going to kill you, but you have to do these things for us. And that's their covenant. That's their solemn agreement with each other. There's actually an example of one in the scripture we can look at. Joshua 3, I mean, Joshua 9, verses 3 through 21. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn-out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins, worn out and torn and mended, with worn-out patches, with worn-out patched sandals on their feet and worn-out clothes. And all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp of, at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country, so make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us. Then how can we make a covenant with you? They said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you and where do you come from? They said to him, from a very distant country, your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion, the king of Heshbon, and to Og, the king of Bashan, who lived at Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, Take provisions in your hand for the journey and go and meet them and say to them, we are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. So I'm going to pause there. You can kind of see that this is a Susan tree covenant. Um, even though they're lying about who they are, they're recognizing that Israel is a much greater nation and they're worried about dying. And they want to have a covenant as if they had already been defeated in war. They want to have a covenant that Israel will let them live under the condition that they be slaves. But anyways, continuing in verse 12. Here is our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as for food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now, behold, it is dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them, and behold, they have burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. 
And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. And at the end of three days, they had made a covenant with them. And they had heard that they were their neighbors and that they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached uh, their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Shapriah, uh, Biroth, and kiriath Jerem. But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. But all the leaders said to the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us, because of the oath we swore to them. And the leader said to them, let them live. So they became cutters of wood, jars of water for the congregation, just as the leader said to them. So the Israelites as a group had a relationship with the Gibeonites as a group, a relationship between parties, between nations. And that relationship was governed by a covenant they had together. So those are two examples of a a covenant relationship. A covenant relationship is just a relationship that's governed by a predefined covenant. And we're going to take a look at how whenever God interacts with humans, with people, it is always in the context of some covenant relationship. Um, There are at least eight aspects that can be found in the covenants of the Bible. Um, Identification of the parties, and these are all in your handout, um, but identification of the parties, hierarchy, because uh, covenants have rules and they typically have someone to it, make sure the rules get followed. Duties, obligations, responsibilities, or laws, those are all one point, but responsibilities. Uh, covenants have oaths or vows because it's a solemn agreement. The fifth one, celebratory uh, ceremonies of inauguration. Uh, the sixth one, signs, seals, and symbols. The seventh one, sanctions, there are blessings for those who obey and curses for those who rebel. Uh, And the eighth one, succession. So these uh, aspects can be found in covenants. Uh, And Greg has explained these eight aspects in various sermons that we have recorded on our website, and I've included uh, links to those in your handout. Um, Again, I've got a 16-page outline today, and we, we don't have time to get into those. But on your handout, there's links to the sermons that Greg has done on those, and those links include the recordings and the handouts that he made for them. And if you would like to study more about those eight aspects, I would encourage you to check out those outlines and podcasts. All right. Um, I want to talk about covenant continuity for a second. Covenant continuity is a very important idea um, for understanding covenant theology. The idea of covenant continuity is that the covenants that God has uh, with people build successively upon each other, and that each covenant does not end or negate the covenant that came before it. For a a quick example of this, let's look at Galatians 3, 15 through 17. To give a human example, brothers, even even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to his offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. So that's just one quick biblical example that none of the covenants... um, void or nullify or negate the covenants that came before it. Now at this point, it's, I need to say that the new covenant fulfills the covenants that came before it. And that word fulfills is very important. It doesn't negate them, it fulfills them. Because in some passages of scripture, it does appear that the new covenant ends the old covenant. And it does, in fact, end some aspects of the Old Covenant. But it's very important that we understand why it ends them. 
it's not because the new covenant negates the old covenant. It's because the new covenant fulfills the requirements of the old covenant. So if I order a package on Amazon and they deliver it, they're no longer required to deliver it because they fulfilled my order. It's been fulfilled. It hasn't been negated. It would be entirely different if Amazon never delivered the package I ordered, even though we made an agreement, and then it was simply somehow decided that they didn't have to. That would mean my order got negated. That would be a problem. So the new covenant doesn't negate the old covenant. The new covenant fulfills the old covenant and all the covenants that came before it, for that matter. I like the way uh, Richard Belcher talks about it uh, in a book of his I was reading recently. He says, God does not work through one covenant, end it, and then move on to another division of the covenant. Rather, each covenant builds on top of previous covenants and includes some aspects of the previous covenants until they all culminate in the new covenant. So the covenants, uh, as I have them listed, and some theologians might use slightly different wording, but overall it's it's the same idea pretty much. But as I have them listed, and as we're going to look at them today, we're going to look at the Eternal Covenant, the Adamic Covenant, the Noahic Covenant, the Abrahamic Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, the Davidic Covenant, and the New Covenant. And then lastly, in this overview, before we get into each covenant, I want to mention some core ideas of covenant theology. So core ideas of covenant theology. Uh, There are one people of God, we'll talk about that a bit today, and we'll we'll get more into it next week. Uh, The covenants apply to the church because there is one people of God made up of Jews and Gentiles, but it is one people. God has one main goal throughout all of redemptive history, and that is to redeem a people for himself and for his glory. And covenant theology emphasizes continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The covenants continue and expand on each other. The Mosaic law still has application and relevance for today, um, even though some parts of it don't apply because they've been fulfilled. But we'll cover those ideas in more detail later. So now we're going to examine each covenant and how the covenants relate to each other. So let's start out by talking about the eternal covenant. The eternal covenant is the agreement between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit to redeem a people for themselves. Uh, It might also be called the covenant of grace or the covenant of redemption. Uh, The main reason I like the name the eternal covenant is because this covenant is the only one that was made outside of time or before time existed. So I like the name eternal covenant. This covenant uh, is implied in Scripture. It is not explicitly talked about in Scripture. Let's look at uh, Acts 2.23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So before... um, Before the Father, the Son, and the Spirit created the space-time realm and the space-time continuum, they agreed with each other to create humanity, to allow the fall to happen, and to redeem humanity. And this was agreed upon outside of time and before time was created, even though that's rather complicated. So that's the idea of the eternal covenant. I kind of wanted to read something I found that I thought was cool, some quotes by Charles Spurgeon. So he actually wrote out, um, these are imaginative, not authoritative, but he imagines what it would have been like for the Father, the Son, and the Spirit to agree together before time in a covenant to redeem humanity. And... um, Again, it's imaginative, not authoritative at all, but this concept is worth using your imagination to think about. So I kind of wanted to read it. Let's look at uh, Spurgeon's imaginative idea of... Oh, where did I put that? Of the Father's agreement in the eternal covenant. 
I, the Most High Jehovah, do hereby give unto my only begotten and well-beloved Son a people countless beyond the number of the stars who shall be by him washed from sin, by him preserved and kept and led, and by him at last presented before my throne without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. I covenant by oath and swear by myself because I can swear by no greater that those whom I now give to Christ shall be forever the object of my eternal love. Them I will forgive through the merit of the blood. To these will I give a perfect righteousness. These I will adopt and make my sons and daughters. And these shall reign with me through Christ eternally. Then he goes on to give an an imaginative description of the son's agreement and the covenant. So this is uh, what he wrote about the son's agreement. or, uh, Or how he imagines it taking place. My father, on my part, I covenant that in the fullness of time I will become man. I will take upon myself the form and nature of the fallen race. I will live in their wretched world, and for my people I will keep the law perfectly. I will work out a spotless righteousness, which shall be acceptable to the demands of thy just and holy law. In due time I will bear the sins of all my people." Thou shalt exact their debts on me. The chastisement of their peace will I endure. And by my stripes they shall be healed. My father, I covenant and promise that I will be obedient unto death, even death on the cross. I magnify thy law and make it honorable. I will suffer all that they ought to have suffered. I will endure the curse of the law And all the vials of thy wrath shall be emptied and spent upon my head. I will then rise again. I will ascend into heaven, and I will intercede for them at thy right hand. And I will make myself responsible for every one of them, that not one of those whom thou hast given me shall ever be lost. And I will bring all of my sheep whom by thy blood thou hast constituted me as the shepherd, and I will bring everyone safe to thee at last." And then Spurgeon imaginatively um, describes the Spirit's agreement like this. I hereby covenant that all whom the Father giveth to the Son, I will in due time quicken. I will show them their need of redemption. I will cut off from them all groundless hope and destroy their refuge of lies. I love that. I will bring them to the blood of the sprinkling. I will give them faith whereby this blood can be applied to them. I will work in them every grace. I will keep their faith alive. I will cleanse them and drive out all depravity from them. And they shall be uh, presented at last spotless and faultless. So again, this is imaginative, but even though we don't have explicit details on it, we do know that before time existed, there was an agreement between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit to take different roles in redeeming humanity. And I... I pretty much like how Charles Spurgeon imagines it. So the eternal covenant. All the covenants between God and humans are in some sense built upon this covenant, the eternal covenant, because without the eternal covenant, humanity wouldn't have been created nor redeemed because you can't be redeemed if you don't exist. And apart from this, God wouldn't have created humanity. So that's the eternal covenant. The rest of the covenants are between God and humanity, or God and humans. Um, The eternal covenant is between members of the Trinity with each other. So the rest of the covenants I have on a chart that is in your bulletin. Um, It has the Adamic covenant all the way up to the new covenant. So uh, this chart does not include all the aspects that can be found in a covenant, and even for the aspects it does include, it is brief and not comprehensive. That's because I didn't have time to make a comprehensive chart, and there's no way I could fit it on a single page. But it is a good starting point. Um, Because if you want to study these more on your own, this is the chart would give you a good place to start. Um, 
And if you would like to study it further after the sermon, a good you know, exercise in doing your own Bible study would be to import it back into Excel, add more columns for more aspects, search the scriptures for the relevant information, and fill in the rest of the spreadsheet. You could also add you know, more info to the columns that are already there. Because again, this is very, very brief. Um, but yeah, you get a chart. And the PowerPoint's going to be a bit less detailed this time uh, because of the chart, and I didn't feel like putting the chart in the PowerPoint. So you can reference the chart throughout the sermon. By the way, just as a quick side note, doing your own Bible study, um, like just having a question, like what does the Bible say about this, and looking up the answers on your own, apart from asking someone else, is good experience. Everyone should have experience studying the Bible on their own, or else we'll just, you know, not really know the Bible for ourselves. Uh, Whether you fill out the chart or not, that's not of extreme importance, but everyone should have their own, everyone should get experience studying the Bible for themselves and not just taking other people's word on it. All right, so the Adamic Covenant. We're going to start by giving an overview of the Adamic Covenant. So the Adamic Covenant is God's covenant with Adam and all Adam's descendants. Adam is the federal head, and Adam's descendants are the successors. So therefore, the Adamic Covenant, or God's covenant with Adam, applies to all humans ever, because all humans are descendants of Adam. You might not think of God's relationship with Adam as a covenant relationship, since the term covenant doesn't get used to describe it anywhere in the first few chapters of Genesis, but we know from elsewhere in Scripture that it was a covenant relationship. Let's look at Hosea 6, verse 7. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. So elsewhere in the scripture, God's relationship with Adam is described as a covenant relationship. So what are the responsibilities? Because all covenants have responsibilities. What are the responsibilities for Adam and his descendants in this? Uh, The first one, to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. Let's look at Genesis um, 1 verses 28 and 29. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with uh, seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. So that's the first responsibility in that covenant is to, you know, the dominion mandate to fill the earth and subdue it. And the second responsibility in the Adamic covenant is to not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Let's look at Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You shall surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. Uh, For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. So covenants don't just have responsibilities, they have sanctions. And here we see one of the sanctions. Uh, You know, the consequence for eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is death. The covenant sanctions uh, for, you know, eating the fruit was death and the curse. And this next point is important. Since um, the sanction for breaking the Adamic covenant is death, and all humanity is under the Adamic covenant, because we're all descendants of Adam, all humanity is therefore under the sentence of death as part of the Adamic covenant. Because it applies to everyone. It applies to all humans, because all humans are descendants of Adam. And because the covenants build on each other, we are still under the Adamic covenant. But we'll explain that further in a bit. But that's a brief overview of the Adamic covenant. 
Now let's get into the Noahic Covenant. The Noahic Covenant is God's covenant with Noah and all Noah's descendants. Noah is the federal head and his descendants are the successors. And therefore, the Noahic Covenant applies to all humans since Noah, since all humans since Noah are descendants of Noah. And notice, you know, there's a flow to the covenants. Notice that Noah himself is under the Adamic covenant, which does not get abolished, because no new covenant uh, negates the covenant that came before it. So now, all Noah's descendants are under both the Adamic covenant and the Noahic covenant. So they flow into each other. Let's look at um, some passages that describe the Noahic covenant. Genesis 6, verses 17 and 18. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. Let's also look at Genesis 9, verses 1 through 17. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall come upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. And to your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood, and for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. And God said to Noah and his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth." And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And when I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh." When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between uh, me and all flesh that is on the earth. We're going to have a lot of reading to do today. <laughs> but anyways, so that is a very... Um, very much an overview of the Noahic Covenant. So let's, in that passage, we can see the responsibilities of the Noahic Covenant. The first one, you know, be fruitful and multiply of, and fill the earth. And this is really just a restated responsibility from the Adamic Covenant, which is still in effect. But a, a new responsibility in this one, which kind of comes with a new benefit, we get to eat meat. Can I get an amen? Amen! Uh, don't eat blood. You know, that's one of the responsibilities of the Noahic Covenant. And then a third responsibility of the Noahic Covenant is to establish justice. God says, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. That's not so much a commandment to the murderer. Uh, that's kind of a commandment to man, the murderer isn't going to submit and say, oh, my blood must be shed. This is a 
This is kind of about establishing government. If somebody sheds the blood of man, if one person murders another, they are to be executed for it. So a third responsibility in the Noahic covenant is to establish justice. And then we also saw that, um, you know, covenants have signs and seals. Um, One of the signs of the Noahic covenant is the rainbow. Uh, And the Noahic covenant comes with certain unconditional benefits, like the fact that God will never destroy the whole earth again with a flood. Um, And that we get to eat meat. Praise God. So that is a brief overview of the Noahic covenant. Um, Let's keep moving along. The Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant is God's covenant uh, with Abraham and Abraham's descendants. Abraham is the federal head, and his descendants are the successors. So let's talk about the flow of the covenants, because they all flow into each other. They all build off each other. Abraham is a descendant of Adam and also a descendant of Noah. And so now, all of Abraham's descendants are under all three of these covenants. But anyways, let's look at the Abrahamic covenant in Scripture. Let's look at Genesis 15, 7 through 21. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abraham drove them away, or Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, uh, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and they will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go uh, to, to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down, it was dark. Behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I will give this land uh, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. So um, this cutting animals in half and walking between them in ancient cultures or in some ancient cultures was a covenantal ceremony or a ceremony for establishing a covenant. And, um, and walking between the dead animals was a sign that uh, if you don't keep the covenant, you're going to die. But God actually didn't allow Abraham or Abram to walk through. God went through himself in the form of, you know, the fire. And that's kind of a sign, uh, a foreshadowing, if you will, of how Christ will pay the death. He'll pay the price. So that is the ceremony which enacted the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, Let's look for further description of the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 17, verses 1 through 14 and 18 through 21. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. And Abram fell on his face. And God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you 
and you shall be a father of a multitude of nations. Now, no longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you a father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. Again, the covenants don't get negated. They're everlasting covenants. But, um, you know, throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant with you, which you shall keep, between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I, will, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. So let's talk about responsibilities of the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, We saw some of them in the chapter 17, which we just read a good uh, portion of. Circumcision is one of the responsibilities of the Abrahamic covenant. And... um, I also put walking blamelessly before God, because in the first verse, God says, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I might make my covenant between me and you. So those are some responsibilities of the Abrahamic covenant. Also note, circumcision wasn't just one of the responsibilities of the Abrahamic covenant, it's also a sign of the covenant, so a reminder to the people of the covenant. And lastly, I also want to point out that um, when I say Abraham's descendants are the successors of the Abrahamic covenant, I don't mean all of them. The Bible is clear that it's the ones according to promise. Let's look at Romans 9, verses 6 through 9. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all the children of Abraham, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. We'll get more into this next week, but uh, I do want us to note that not all of Abraham's descendants are children of prom- according to the promise. And the covenant uh, is for those according to the promise. So that is a brief overview of the Abrahamic covenant. Now let's get into a brief overview of the Mosaic covenant. So in the Mosaic Covenant, um, it's God's covenant with the people of Israel. Moses is the federal head, and the Israelites and their descendants are the successors. And let's talk about the flow of the covenants. So at this point in our examination, all four of the covenants that we've looked at so far apply to the Israelites, because they're descendants of Adam, 
They're descendants of Noah, they're descendants of Abraham, and they're under the Mosaic Covenant because the covenants flow into each other. Uh, There are so many passages we could look at to see this covenant, but for the sake of time, we're only going to look at one. Um, Exodus 24, verses 3 through 8. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And you might remember that vows are a part of covenant. This is one of the places where we see uh, the vows of this covenant. Um, And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. And he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So, what are the responsibilities of the Mosaic Covenant? The responsibilities of the Mosaic Covenant are keeping God's law and conquering the land of Canaan. Uh, Circumcision is still a sign of the Mosaic Covenant. um, And there are many blessings and curses Uh, for obedience and disobedience as part of the sanctions, and they are very clearly spelled out in Deuteronomy 28, but sadly we don't have time to read all of Deuteronomy 28. But you can read it later, if you like. All right, so that is a brief overview of the Mosaic Covenant. We're, We're moving along well. Let's go to a brief overview of the Davidic Covenant. The Davidic covenant is God's covenant with David and his descendants. David is the federal head, and his descendants are the successors. So let's let's take a look at the flow of the covenants again. David is a descendant of Abraham and also an Israelite. So at this point, all five of these covenants apply to David and David's descendants. And even though this covenant applies specifically to David's descendants, it affects and benefits all of Abraham's descendants and eventually unfolds to benefit the whole world. But it is specifically with David and David's descendants. So let's look at some passages that describe it. 1 Kings 8.25 Now therefore, O Lord, God of Israel, Keep for your servant David, my father, what you have promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel, if only your sons pay close attention to their way and walk before me as you have walked before me. Now that's a good summary of the Davidic covenant, even though it doesn't say right there, it doesn't use the word covenant. But there's other places in scripture where it describes this as a covenant. Let's look at Psalm, eight, Psalm 89, verses three and four. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. It gets described as a covenant also in Psalm 132, verses 11 and 12. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. So what are the responsibilities of the Davidic covenant? The responsibilities are to walk faithfully before God. You know, it's said in 1 Kings 8.25, you shall not lack a man to sit on the throne um, if only your sons pay close attention to their way and walk before me as you've walked before me. So the responsibilities for the Davidic covenant is walking faithfully before God. And we can also see the sanctions of the Davidic covenant. Let's look at 1 Kings 9, uh, verses 2 through 9. 
The Lord appeared to Solomon a second time, as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your plea, which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And as for you, if you will walk before me as David your father walked, with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you, and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I have promised David your father, saying, You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. But... If you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but go on and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them. And the house that I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight. And Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone passing by will be astonished and will hiss. And they will say, why has the Lord done this to the land and to this house? Then they will say, because they abandoned the Lord their God who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and laid hold on other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought this disaster on them. So those were the sanctions for the Davidic covenant. And sadly, David's, well, not sadly, uh, overall, because God's plans always work out best, um, David's descendants did not follow God very faithfully. But God had a bigger plan in mind. All right. That's a brief overview of the Davidic covenant. Now let's get to the new covenant. A brief overview of the new covenant. So the new covenant is God's covenant with Christ and his people. Christ is the federal head and Christ's disciples and their spiritual descendants are the successors. Now at this point, I really want to focus on the flow of the covenants. We've been looking at the flow of the covenants with each of the covenants we've looked at. So Christ is a descendant of David. So Christ, through his incarnation, has placed himself under all the covenants we've looked at um, on our side. Not only that, but Christ is the one, the only one, who fulfills the requirements of all these covenants. I want to look specifically at... um, Actually, we'll come... Now let's look at it now. Let's look at how Christ fulfills all the covenants. Christ fulfills the eternal covenant because he fulfills his agreement with the Father and the Spirit. Christ fulfills the Adamic covenant because Christ prays the price of death that is owed because of Adam's sin. Christ fulfills the Noahic covenant because Christ will establish the first and only truly righteous government. Christ fulfills the Abrahamic covenant because Christ is the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham, and Christ fulfills the responsibilities of circumcision and walking blamelessly before God. Christ fulfills the Mosaic covenant because Christ obeyed the whole law flawlessly his entire life. And Christ fulfills the Davidic covenant because Christ is the fulfillment of God's promise to David and the fulfillment of David's descendants' responsibilities. So that's probably one of the most important points in this sermon. The covenants all build on each other, and then in the new covenant, Christ fulfills the requirements for all of them. But anyways, let's look at um, some passages that describe the new covenant. Uh, Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. Behold, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Let's also look at Matthew 26, verse 28. For this is my blood of the covenant, 
which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And then lastly, let's look at uh, Hebrews 8, verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old covenant, um, much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. So Christ is the mediator of the new covenant. And there's more verses we could look at, but it's 1157. This is not bad for a 16-page outline. Um, Anyways, in conclusion, God relates to his people, or to people in general, through covenant relationships. We have seen that throughout history, whenever God is interacting with man, it is in the context of some covenant relationship. If nothing else, because all humanity is under the Adamic covenant. God has initiated a series of covenant relationships that each build upon the last until they all get fulfilled by Christ and the final covenant, the new covenant. And uh, the second point I want to hit upon in my conclusion is that there are only one people of God. This is a very important point, and we're, we're going to go into further detail on it next week. Um, let's look at Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 22. This is kind of just a preview for next week. Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 22. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you um, were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, so that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace." and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to you who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens. A citizen isn't a member of a social club. A citizen is a member of a nation. Fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being jointed together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So that is our conclusion. Today's communion meditation is that Jesus fulfills the covenant requirements. I know we looked at it, but let's look at it again because, you know, we come here to praise and to see the glory of Christ. We are all under the Adamic covenant, and because we are, we are under Adam's debt, which is death. But God the Son took on flesh and placed himself under the Adamic covenant on our side, and he paid the debt of death. And now anyone who is in Christ though they're still under the Adamic covenant, no longer owes that debt because Christ paid their debt. Not only do they have their debt paid, but since Christ also lived a righteous life and passed every test, we have all the blessings of total righteousness being credited to us because of Christ. So Christ's people get all the covenant blessings because of Christ. Not only does Christ fulfill the requirement of death from the Adamic covenant, but he fulfills the requirements of all the covenants. And I know we just looked at it, but it's worth looking at again. Christ fulfills the eternal covenant because he fulfills the agreement that he had with the Father and the Spirit. Uh, Christ fulfills the Adamic covenant because he pays the price of death that is owed because of Adam's sin. Christ fulfills the Noahic covenant because he establishes the first and only truly just government. 
Christ fulfills the Abrahamic covenant because he is the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham and he fulfills the responsibilities of circumcision and walking blamelessly before God. Christ fulfills the Mosaic covenant because he obeyed the whole law flawlessly his entire life on our behalf. And Christ fulfills the Davidic covenant because he is the fulfillment of God's promise to David and the fulfillment of David's descendants' responsibilities. He is the descendant of David who did walk faithfully before God. So let's praise Christ as we come to the table in remembrance of his death on our behalf.